This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Avi Goldfarb. Avi is a professor at the University of Toronto's Rotman School of Management, the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare, as well as the co-author of two best-selling books on AI and its economic impact. In this episode, we discuss his books, the impacts of AI, and his work with Creative Destruction Lab. Please enjoy my conversation with Avi Goldfarb. Avi, I would really like to start with, um, you spent time at studying at Queens and Northwestern, and it looked like you're kind of going down that professor track since day one, but was that always something that you wanted to do? Not always. Um, I don't think I really knew this was a track in high school. And then I, I knew I liked economics in university and Queens. I thought I was going to do you know, grad school in economics, but frankly, when I applied to grad school, I didn't even know that that led to a professor route necessarily, uh, from the start. And then once I got to grad school, it was clear that this is what I wanted to do. It was also clear that you know, what I was training myself to do was be a professor. And so 
that's how I landed there. But sometime in my early twenties, I kind of figured it out. And what were some things that interested you along that professor route? Like I've kind of only done my undergrad and maybe I'll go back to school, but what really, what got you fired up about that? Was it just always being able to learn? I'm, I'm curious what, what got you intrigued there? So it's a great job, uh, for a certain kind of people, uh, which is, uh, I get to think about whatever I find interesting and spend months or even years trying to understand it. That's amazing. And then I get to talk to people about it, but you know, I teach students and, you know, talk to you and talk to all sorts of others. It's really fantastic. Um, when I said that for a certain kind of person, it's the work is almost totally unstructured. So in teaching structured, right, you, you have to deliver a lesson plan and all that, but the rest of the work, the research work is totally unstructured. So as an assistant professor, when you're just starting out, um, you have this deadline coming up called tenure. That's something like six years away and you have to produce stuff for six years from now. And there are very few interim deadlines. It's just, okay. At the end of six years, you have to like a pile of work, a body of work. And that's, it's weird because it's. In some abstract way, it's not stressful because your deadline is six years from now, uh, but it's constant. And there's a constant anxiety as a, as a assistant professor and thinking through, am I working enough? Because you don't get the interim feedback. So, uh, takes a particular mindset. Then you get, you know, so you get tenure, then you get tenure and same idea, totally unstructured, but you no longer have any deadline. Okay. So now it's, you're motivated to work on things that you want to work on because you want to work on them and you're curious. And so it's, uh, like that's fantastic. Like personally, it's, it's great for my, uh, my style of yeah, the way I think, the way I like to do things. But, uh, a lot of people find that very hard to not have anybody really telling them what to do at all. And it's definitely like, like you mentioned, it's your style of working and like that process there. But, you know, what were some things that intrigued you maybe day one that maybe didn't pan out? Like if you do pivot, like what is that like? Is a lot of stress? Hey, I've been working on this for three years and I got to throw it out the window. <laughs> How does that work? Yeah. So the nice thing about research is you're trying to discover stuff that nobody's figured out before. The hard thing is that you're often wrong. In fact, you're more often wrong than right. And so there's been lots of projects that I've spent two, three, four years on, you're not the only thing I've been working on, but there's still plenty and plenty of hours where ultimately I learned, okay, well, turns out that was wrong. I, my hypothesis was wrong and no one's going to publish this. And you just sort of shelve it and move on. I had a, a project I started in, I guess I started it in 2011 and just getting all the data organized and everything up and running. It took till about 2015, we had a draft. Um, now it's probably about one out of 10 projects I would have been working on over that time. But still it was you know, me and one co-author was a good chunk of our time. And, uh, we we're really excited about it. We sent it into a journal. They liked it. So we're like, good news. Okay. And they asked us to do some things to make sure the results were robust. Okay. Like, okay, we like this idea. Let's just make sure it's really true. Cause we're gonna publish it. We want to be able to trust it. So we did the things that they asked and the result didn't hold up. Like it turns out. Those things that they wanted us to check. Well, they were right to ask us to check those and like, okay. So now we're at 2018, seven years after we started or something. And we're like, okay, nope. Turns out we spent seven years and we learned that there's nothing there. Um, 
And so the paper is sitting somewhere in my computer and I haven't looked at it for five years, but it did take seven years of like, so that's, that's part of the process. That's the painful part of the process. But at the same time, there's the other side, which is every once in a while, one of your ideas turns out to be right and, or at least, uh, intriguing and have some evidence to support it. And it's got some legs and that's, that's fine. That's to really see um, something you discovered or a way of thinking that, that you, you know, always with co-authors, always with collaborators, put forward, uh, to start to, you know, impact other researchers and other people around the world. That's uh, really exciting. What was one of the first things that you worked on that turned out to be true that all the time you put in kind of worked out? And was this while you were at University of Toronto? Uh, so maybe probably started toward the end of grad school and then more when I was at the University of Toronto. Uh, in the late 90s, there was a lot of excitement around the internet. Okay, that's just like, that was the big hype technology. And in grad school, um, you know, my field of economics is sort of pick an industry. And uh, that seemed like, an, hey, no one knows anything about the internet. So no matter what I find, it'll be new. And, uh, and so I started studying the internet, getting data and trying to understand what people were doing. And I guess this was right around the time I was graduating, 2002-ish. There was all this discussion about uh, cyberspace and the idea that people do things on the internet. And, um, you know, I had a hypothesis along with a handful of colleagues, Shane Greenstein and Ninja Ghosh, Chris Warman and some others, and it didn't really make sense. Okay. Now that we think about that, of course it doesn't make sense. We, we live in physical space. We all live in meat space. Cyberspace isn't a real place. Um, and so what does it mean? empirically that we talk about being in cyberspace, but cyberspace isn't a real place. And sort of this interaction between where you are on offline and what you do online, that, uh, trying to unpack that distinction was the sort of first, uh, successful idea that I worked on over the first, you know, five, 10 years of my career. I let me clear, wasn't the only person thinking about that, but I was part of this, uh, actually that cyberspace is not a real place is a quote from Mark Lemley, who's a Stanford law professor. Um, but there were a handful of us that were, uh, saying to this, both this literature in the, you know, what people were saying, uh, you know, outside of academia, that cyberspace, when you talk about cyberspace and you're doing stuff on the internet to recognize, well, everything you do on the internet depends on what you do and what you know and what you feel offline. And so, for example, the stores you buy from and the stuff you buy online depends on what your local options are retail wise. Uh, the people you interact with online are most often people you've met with in, you know, meet space offline. So your, your email box is filled with people who at one point lived in the same place as you or worked in the same place as you. And so, you know, that's true of your text and your social media feed, et cetera. So this interaction between online and offline and the recognition that cyberspace, no, it's not a real place was sort of that first idea that I worked on, um, that went from speculation to really unpacking and understanding what that meant. Ultimately, what happens when research works out? Like, like I know some universities will like commercialize things. Like obviously you're an author, so you're turning some of that research into a book. But what happens if it's like, hey, this is a crazy breakthrough. Like what happens then? Okay. So it's going to depend on the field and the research. So I'm an economist um, who sits in a business school. So 
what happens when my research works out, uh, you start to be invited to policy conversations. So to the, you know, my research on privacy became part of the conversation in Europe and the US, like along with many other researchers on privacy, uh, in trying to think through what appropriate privacy regulation would look like. So you, you get invited to the table to, to talk about policy, um, is one version of that for econ and management. Another is, uh, the ideas start to permeate in the press and people start talking about them and people start inviting you to, uh, talk in their podcasts, uh, to general audiences who may be interested in the ideas you're, you're unpacking. Uh, and then the third category is, and this is distinctive, you know, I said the business school, I guess, is that some of the ideas end up being taken into business practice and you can see them, uh, implemented, you know, typically by others, uh, as they try to build businesses around them. And that's, uh, now if I were in the hard sciences or in computer science for that matter, other places in the university, there's this might be another category of impact, which is like, you know, patent something, turn it into an invention uh, that, uh, might then be used around the world, or I'd, uh, you know, build something that may not be patented. So I might not, uh, but still would, you know, change the way we, uh, we interact with nature in some way, um, where, um, but that's like, that's less on the econ business school side of things. When it comes to research, I feel like that's a unique thing to do. You know, most people will stop learning or researching in a major capacity after undergrad. Uh, how do you like maintain that as you're going forward? Like, how do you keep that curiosity and that drive there on a personal level? Oh, I love it. I'm not sure there's much more to it. I, I like, so there's two aspects of being a researcher or professor that I really love. Okay. Number one is I love the process of learning, uh, new things. And, um, I think that's natural for somebody who's been in school for as long as I have. And the other is I love talking about ideas. Uh, my ideas are others' ideas, but I like presenting um, and discussing ideas. And so that combination, I don't know, keeps me pretty driven. Uh, if you're not the kind of person who likes, you know, being exposed to new ideas and, and pushing forward with them and then arguing about them and debating them, then it's not the right profession for you. In terms of discussing ideas, you ultimately have written two books now. Um, with your first book, with Prediction Machines, um, how did that come about? Was that, you know, I know you have some co-authors who are also uh, professors at University of Toronto, but how did you get, was this research that you were doing and you, you said, hey, this could be interesting as a book? And how did you cross that chasm of research to ultimately writing a book? Yeah. Um, so my goal actually was really research originally. Um, so, um, Here's the answer. Jay Joshua and I, my co-authors and I, had all made our career studying the internet. So they have similar stories, you know, give or take five years, where there was this new technology and we, we all made our careers trying to understand how uh, digital technology, information fits not out, it was affecting marketplaces. Uh, then uh, Jay started this program called the Creative Destruction Lab, which is a program for science-based startups. Um, started in Toronto in 2012. We're now in 12 universities around the world, including four others in Canada. And, uh, at the lab at our very first cohort, there was this company called Atomwise. And the CEO of the company said, 
we're doing artificial intelligence for drug discovery. Okay. And put yourself back in 2012, that seemed insane. Okay. Artificial intelligence wasn't like that was pure science fiction still for most people. And for drug discovery, it just seemed like well, what do these things have to do with each other? You dig in, what he's doing, he's uh, he built um, a model to predict which molecules bind which proteins, which is the essence of parts of drug discovery, which is that uh, you think about a lot of disease is caused by certain proteins in your body. And so what you want is to identify molecules, identify drugs that will bind to those proteins, but not the other proteins in your body. Okay. That's how you get side effects. And so he said, well, we're doing AI for drug discovery. And that's just seemed like really exciting and really crazy. Then over the next couple of years, we had this trickle of companies calling themselves AI and insurance and banking pharmaceuticals, medicine, all over the place. That seemed intriguing. And then suddenly, I guess it was the 2015 cohort where well over half of the applicants to the program were AI companies. This is when we were still Toronto only. And suddenly we had this view of AI startups that no one else had. And um, it just seemed like something was happening. We had a front row seat. And it was time to try to understand it and write about it. So what do we do? Well, we're researchers. So we said, okay, well, let's, let's try to write a research paper about this. And we were talking and we eventually came up with the idea, the core thesis of prediction machines, that uh, we should think about recent advances in artificial intelligence as prediction technology. So in the statistical sense, you're using information you have to fill in uh, information you don't have. And uh, that seems super exciting. And Jay. Jay and I actually were, were talking about it and we're really, really excited. And we went to Joshua and paid, Joshua, it's time to write a paper about this. And he goes to us, okay, so I said, we should think about it as dropping the cost of prediction. Yeah. And so we're going to do more prediction. I'm like, yeah, let's write a paper. He said, well, what's the paper? That demand curve slope downward. Uh, that's econ 101. We know that. Is there any, like, do we have more to it than just to say, okay, that first sentence, once you understand AI's prediction, then we can use simple economics to map through the rest of the implications. And we had to admit to him that no, like it was, once we recognize AI's prediction, everything else is pretty simple economics. And uh, we, we agreed, okay, we can't write a research paper at this point, but we could write an article, a particular blog post. So we wrote a little blog post, about 800 words, posted it on HBR, this was the fall of 2016. And, uh, and it pointed out that AI is prediction. So we're going to see machines do more and more and more prediction, demand curve slope downward. And the complements to prediction, we called human judgment, are actually going to become more valuable, not less. And uh, so we posted it and you know, we sort of saw what happened. And people liked it. Like, lots of people read that little blog post of ours. And uh, we realized, oh, maybe... Maybe there is an audience for this. It's not our usual academic audience. Uh, we can write a book about it. And so we got an agent, approached the press, and, and went forward. Now, uh, so that's my version of the story. Joshua had written books before, so it was less crazy for him. And I think Ajay had some goals of a general audience eventually, after we'd written the research papers. But for me, like, I had no intention of writing a book, and, but we had this idea. And we thought it was an interesting idea. Uh, and the, the outlet for it turned out to be a book. And that led to prediction machines. That's awesome. I'd love to, we'll continue that thread of the book there and like what it's like been writing a book. But I want to kind of go back to, you mentioned CDL. 
which has had a huge impact on the tech ecosystem in Toronto and Canada more broadly and globally. Um, how did that start? What was it like early days? Uh, I've had some other guests on and future guests that were part of that ecosystem as well. And why did so many AI startups come into that? Because there is a strong AI talent pool at the University of Toronto. Yeah. Okay. Lots of yeah. pieces. Oh. Um, so the goal of the CDL is commercialization of science for the betterment of humanity. That's our, that's our mission. And um, the core thesis of it is this great science all over the world, including here in Toronto. Uh, but for some reason, commercialization overwhelmingly happens within 50 miles of Stanford, okay? like really in, in the Bay Area. There's some in Boston and some other places, but really just you know, relative to the science. And it's not that Stanford and Berkeley have such great science. Yes, they have great science, but Toronto's great science, MIT has great science, Princeton is great, lots of great science in places. Uh, and this was actually, trying to understand that was the subject of a Jay's own academic research, his postdoc was about trying to understand commercialization out of universities of deep science uh, ventures. So the CDL itself, so he said, okay, well, I've learned all this stuff uh, about how science-based startups succeed. And he may have not thought about this deliberately, but in retrospect, what he clearly did was create his own science-based startup, which is I have my own body of research that helps us understand how uh, you know, science commercializes out of universities. And I'm going to try to build my own um, through this creative instruction lab at the University of Toronto. And he got, um, in the early days, uh, seven people who were, uh, who'd all built companies and cared about entrepreneurship in Canada to agree to come to the University of Toronto for five days over the course of that first year and meet with companies and mentor them and give them advice. Okay. And that was the, the essence of it. He had a few um, uh, tools and forcing mechanisms to make sure that it wasn't uh, just you know people chatting without trying to accomplish much, which is that at the end of every meeting, you had to tell the company, what are the three core things you need to do by the end of, by the next meeting? So you know, a couple months between, next time we see you, here's what we expect from you. Um, and that was based on his work showing that um, that a big part of mentoring was moving from there's a thousand things any given startup could work on, any founder could work on figuring out what the core ones were. And then the other thing uh, that was fundamental to the long-run success of CDL was not every company graduates. So at the end of every meeting, to keep those seven, originally seven mentors interested, they said, you know, which of these companies are you willing to spend time with between now and the next meeting? And if a company, if none of the mentors were willing to spend time with the company, the company got cut. But on the flip side, what that meant was for a company to stay in, one of the mentors had to pay. They had to pay with their time. And spending four hours of their time is, that's a real ask, right? These are busy people. And so that's the essence of how the CDL started. It was really rooted in his postdoc work or his uh, academic research on how, uh, science gets commercialized out of universities. That led to, you know, so you know, he and I were co-authors and, you know, we, uh, going back well before that started, but in the first year it was very much his thing. Uh, you know, I'd 
came every once in a while and supported us. I could, but it was a small thing. It was, you know, seven people, 20 companies. It didn't really need much infrastructure. Uh, but Joshua and I were, were part of it early. And then as it grew, we became more and more involved. Um, first as it grew in Toronto and then you know, adding the AI stream and then, then first to Vancouver at UBC where he's, that's a uh, Jay's PhD is from UBC. So he had some connections there. That was sure part of the, the early interest. And then, uh, around Canada and around the world. And he asked the, the AI question, why AI? That was lucky. Like we had no, in the sense that by luck or foresight, uh, the CIFAR and the Canadian government had invested in a technology called uh, deep learning. They invested it starting in the nineties um, and it seemed like it wasn't going anywhere. And then, uh, so we had expertise in Toronto and to some extent, Waterloo and Montreal and Edmonton in AI. So there was a lot of Canadian expertise in this. Um, and then suddenly in 2012, it was clear that there was commercial opportunity here. And so, and really by 2015, um, at the CDL, we saw it. And to, you know, Jay uh, decided to make a bet that, uh, that this was something uh, that wasn't just that we would accidentally, okay, AI companies apply to CDL, we'll, we'll let them in. We're actually going to do a whole stream on AI and try to be an AI-focused uh, program for science-based startups way before anybody else was thinking about that. Oh, I, shouldn't, I don't know when anybody else was thinking about that. Way before anybody else did that at that kind of scale. What was it like, like those kind of early days and like focus on AI? And I, you mentioned earlier in the conversation of, you know, this this AI company in 2012 seemed crazy. What was it like when you were kind of starting CDL, like starting this AI stream? Obviously you had these business, influential business leaders and it was a good initial starting ecosystem, but you know, everyone's talking about AI today, chat GPT, it's just taken over mainstream, but what was it like in those early days? Uh, it was, okay, so, uh, Jay and I were on sabbatical at Stanford that 2015, 2016 year. He, we were back and forth cause he was still running CDL, but, uh, we were at Stanford and by then at Stanford, uh, people were willing to take risks on the technology and people there were excited about it. And we came back to Toronto for our first AI conference. It was fall 2016, 2015. Um, we ran this, uh, market for intelligence conference. We got all these, uh, you know, all these speakers to come, you know, academics and people started companies. Uh, to talk about AI and, um, and we had some Canadian business leaders and we, and because we had a conference, like part of it, we got the conference, we got people to fly from California to the conference. And then while they were in Toronto, the next day they went to the CDL. Okay. So we got the Americans, uh, to come in, um, as part of that. And, uh, the, what was particularly interesting is the U S based VCs and the U.S.-based um, uh, business people got it and were very excited and said, wow, there's really cool stuff happening in Canada. Okay. Um, that same day, we had this uh, meeting of Canadian business leaders. Dean managed to put together like CEOs of major Canadian companies and other real leaders. And they walked away with, okay, well, uh, we're going to wait to see what the Americans do. And a couple of years from now, if it seems like they think this is worthwhile, then we're going to invest in it. Okay. And that, that was hard. 
like we were based in Canada. I grew up here. Jay uh, grew up here. Or Jay grew up in Vancouver, but here in Canada. Um, and uh, it was just to see how like, okay, here's a technology. The researchers were already here. Toronto and to, to some extent, Montreal, uh, Waterloo and Edmonton, right? We, we had the research lead and we couldn't get Canadian industry to be excited about it until the Americans were excited about it first. And, uh, so building it was, um, it was exciting, but there were a few things like, or in the early days that were, that were frustrating, which is like that Atomwise, that first company I mentioned, they moved to the States. They couldn't get Canadians excited about them and investing in them. They, uh, they ended up having to, for a variety of reasons, but they moved to the U.S. And there were a handful of those real, Canadian, real AI leaders who were in Canada, who at our first conference, they were in Canada. And by the second or third or, you know, or now they ended up moving south of the border. Okay. So that's a very, um, now, okay. So that was what, like the struggle in the early days was. We had the Americans excited. We really wanted Canada to get excited. Um, that part of the story has a pretty happy ending uh, in the sense that, I'm not sure exactly when, but starting somewhere in 2017, 2018, Canadian industry woke up. Uh, and especially on the investing side, uh, we have Radical Ventures and a handful of others. Um, on the training side, we have things like the Veterans Institute and Mila and, and Amy um, uh, and just Canada seemed to wake up to, hey, we have this, we built this expertise starting in the 90s. We don't want it all to leave uh, just because, you know, because uh, the commercial opportunities aren't here. And so uh, today you can build a successful AI company based in Canada. Uh, you can raise funds. The Americans are willing to come here. They don't make you leave. There's enough action here that uh, they'll come for the quarterly meetings and sort of line them up if you uh, want that expertise and money. So it's, it, the ecosystem has really changed around AI, uh, in ways that, that are exciting for Canada. I, I had a conversation with radical ventures, I think last week or the week before, and it was super interesting. And, you know, we're seeing homegrown AI talent like Cohere and others start in Canada. Um, when you look at that industry shift, how do you, how do you see that shift? Cause that is the topic of like both of your books, the first one focus on prediction and the second one focus on, you know, the internal systems that these companies need to have to put AI into their uh, companies. How do you see industry making that shift? Because, you know, maybe traditionally, like maybe they'd hire a chief AI officer who's going to sprinkle some AI in the company. How do you really see these companies shifting in the last few years to like actually adopting AI? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in the early days, or not the early days, but you know, five years ago, if somebody uh, was interested in bringing AI into their company um, and they were not in, in the C-suite and say, okay, figure out what's in your span of control, find something that you have data for and look for an easy win. Okay, look for, oh, you can show that the prediction you made is gonna help incrementally improve productivity in this process, just to prove that you can do it before you uh, try to think bigger. And what we found with that process, or what I found with that process is uh, no one cares. So even when they have the easy win, first of all, nothing's that easy, never that easy. Uh, and second, even if you do have the easy win, uh, you know, ultimately it was an incremental improvement and nobody noticed. 
So where uh, we now think the right starting point is to think through what are the big picture ways that you could deliver value to your customers or you know, run your company better? Think big. And then identify the places where a lack of information is preventing you from delivering on that big picture mission. Uh, once you have that established, then you can think through, okay, well, what are the predictions that will help us get that information? Then you can say, okay, which of the ones are easiest, which of the ones are hardest to start with the easy ones. But, but first at least, you know, Hey, if this all works, uh, are we going to be transformative or is this ultimately no matter what can be incremental? And if no matter what's going to be incremental, then you're going to see struggles. And a lot of what we've seen, uh, if you look at the data on AI adoption in business, uh, there's two challenges. Challenge number one is most people haven't adopted. And challenge number two is even among those who have adopted, uh, many of them haven't seen a payoff. How do we make sense of that? It's, well, if all you're doing is thinking through within my given workflow, how can I make one little process a little bit more efficient? Um, it, the upside of implementing AI is going to be pretty limited. And if the upside of uh, doing something is going to be limited, you're not going to bother in the first place. So what we're, um, what we're starting to see around the world and what we've been pushing for in, in our new book, Power and Prediction, is this recognition that you know, by, if you start by thinking big, you'll be, you'll be able to identify places where AI is going to make a difference. And once you start doing that, uh, then, uh, then within your company, it'll be worth it to adopt. And that will end up scaling around all sorts of other companies around the world. And so, you know, recognizing um, that in order for it to be worth it to invest, say, the millions of dollars necessary in data scientists and data organization, um, there's got to be a really big payoff at the end of the day uh, in the tens, hundreds, or billions, hundreds of millions or billions, depending on the company. And so thinking through that big payoff is the step. I'd like to circle back to the conversation on the book there. So with your first book, you mentioned Joshua had written some books before, but what was that process like as a first time author? Like, how do you get a published, like, how do you get it published? How do you get the book out there? How do you market the book? Was this kind of like a trial and error or, uh, I'd love to learn about how that first book went. Uh, so it was all like, it was all trial and error. We knew nothing. Um, but I, I okay. Um, so I wrote this blog post and as I said, people liked it and we decided we we're going to write a book. Okay. And we knew somebody who'd written a successful book at a similar kind of audience. One of our colleagues here, Richard Florida, who's a, uh, uh, geographer and, um, and we asked him, we said, okay, what do you do, Richard? We want to write, uh, we want to publish a book. What do you do? He said, well, starting point is to find an agent. And so he introduced us to his agent and his agent seemed to be interested in what we had to say and signed us up. And then, um, through the agent, we learned about the process where you write a proposal and you send it to publishers. So we wrote a proposal, we sent it to publishers and a few of them liked it. We signed with one of them and that was sort of the end of the story in terms of, and then, then in some ways we thought we were done. Uh, what do I mean by that? Uh, when you write a research paper, like all of our lives for oh, my life, I've written research papers. When you write a research paper, all of the work happens before the paper is accepted. 
So all the writing, all the ideas, all the research, and then the paper is like, you know, then you work and you get paper accepted and it's published and then it's done and you move on to the next project. What I didn't understand about a book and this kind of book is it's totally different. So yeah, look, writing is work, but the, the core idea was already there when we proposed it and you know, we put together the writing and we drafted and we, okay. And it got published. And then I thought we were done. But the reality of a book is most of the work, at least my experience happens after the book is published in telling people about the ideas and, and promoting it. And so, you know, just writing it down in, in the research world, just writing it down was a long way and getting it published in the, uh, more, you know, the bigger marketplace for ideas where we have these, uh, you know, business books, a lot of it's you know, after the fact, uh, which is giving talks and podcasts and radio and TV and newspapers and, uh, and traveling and talking about, and then writing other pieces that build on the ideas in the books. Power prediction came out November 15th, right? So really, oh, you know, so we started the work on it. And then almost to the day, two weeks later, ChatGPT was released. Right. We're like, oh, okay. We, we didn't talk about ChatGPT and power prediction because it didn't exist. So now we need to think through how do we, like, how does what's happened to ChatGPT, this incredible technology for writing, uh, like, how do we understand it through the lens of the way we see the world about, uh, AI's prediction, it's very much still prediction, um, the benefits of judgment, knowing which queries to write in and how to, uh, validate whether, uh, what ChatGPT produces is the kind of thing you want. That's very much all about judgment. Uh, and then, you know, what's it for? Well, that's the essence of power prediction. And so we wrote a handful of pieces, one for HBR, one for Global Mail, a couple other places, trying to interpret these changes that we saw that didn't even exist when we drafted the book. Um, and, and that's necessary. So when you write a research paper, okay, maybe that generate, you know, the new stuff generates a new research project, which turns into a new research paper three or four years from now, when you have the book. You actually have to sort of respond in real time to the ideas and to what's going on in the marketplace. And it's just, it's fun, but it's different kind of work. With chat GPT and that coming out, I guess, what is your view on generative AI? Like, how do you see that work? I guess like the broader thing I'd like to chat about is, and it's covered in both your books, but, you know, no matter how powerful AI is, no matter how you know, it's great, it's amazing, it does this thing, but our existing systems and frameworks within society or within business or wherever AI is being placed, like generative AI is amazing, but then universities have to worry about like, are students writing papers with, with this platform? So I'd love to get maybe some of your thought around like AI is amazing, but how do we cross that chasm into like fitting within existing structures or do those structures need to change? Those structures need to change, okay. Um, or put differently, those structures will change, um, and, or else we won't get any benefit out of the AI. Okay. So like this, um, that's not to say as we, you know, you know, when you change the nature of many people's work, uh, there's going to be winners and losers and we need to, uh, we need to pay attention and recognize that the heterogeneous impact. Uh, so with that caveat in mind, I am incredibly optimistic of the potential for generative AI to create system level change and, uh, lead to a much more dynamic, exciting, interesting world. Um, 
Or where's that coming from? In power and prediction, we contrast what we call point solutions to system solutions. Point solutions are where you, uh, you already have your workflow. We've talked about this a little bit. You identify some prediction that's in that workflow. You take it out and you drop in the prediction machine, you drop in the AI, but you don't mess with the workflow. Symptom solutions are when you change the workflow to figure out new ways to create value. So a lot of the conversation about, say, ChatGPT has been about point solutions. Okay. Uh, right now in education, we ask students to write five-paragraph essays. ChatGPT writes very good five-paragraph essays. Uh-oh, we have a problem. Uh, all bad. Or uh, there are people who make a living out of graphic design. Uh, Dolly. You can now write a sentence into Dolly, you know, give me an astronaut on a horse in the style of it, Andy Warhol, and Dolly will give you an image of an astronaut on a horse in the, uh, in the style of Andy Warhol. And so that hurts the people whose job is now to do graphic design, okay? So that's, that's the point solution mindset. The system solution mindset is, well, now that everybody can write a five paragraph essay or write anything, an email, uh, pretty efficiently, without errors, uh, that upskills millions and millions and millions of people. So like my response to my students, how do you feel about ChatGPT? I said, well, you no longer have an excuse to write badly, uh, right? If you're gonna, if you're gonna write it, even if it's an email, I expect the grammar to be good. I expect the sentence structure to be appropriate. I expect to have an opening and a closing because it's just laziness if it doesn't. Uh, and uh, that upskilling on writing, I think is gonna some, you know, is going to eventually unleash all sorts of opportunities. Similarly with Dolly, when we think about graphic design, I don't know what a world looks like where graphic design is embedded into just about everything we do, but right now that's not the world we live in. And, uh, because it's really expensive to get the kinds of images people want, and there's a particular expertise, but there's lots of creative people in the world who know what they're looking for, but they don't know how to draw it. And with in generative AI, an image-based generative AI like Dolly, uh, they might be able to get it. And that will unleash, you know, a different kind of creativity than we have. And it seems like a pretty exciting world to be in. Not to say like the transition there will be smooth. I, I want to emphasize that. But, but once we figure out what those new systems are, uh, it seems really exciting. Yeah, everybody can write and everybody can create uh, interesting creative images. In your most recent book, you talk about those kind of in-between times and like you give kind of like the light bulb example and how many years it took to kind of reach mainstream and we're kind of going through that cycle again. Is that kind of like the the last time we've had this big of a change we need to rework systems? Would you say the internet was a similar time? Uh, if so, I guess people have a hard time like looking back and it's like, okay, well, yeah, we did make those changes. They kind of just go, okay, well, you know, the internet's always been there, but we have changed systems. So I guess, what are some things that we can do from a business perspective, startups, whatever, changing those things going forward? Okay. Um, so there's a handful of these technologies we call general purpose technologies, actually GPT, but meaning something different, uh, like the steam engine, electricity, the internal combustion engine, um, computing, the internet and others. Okay. And our hypothesis is AI is in that category too. Um, what they all have in common, um, there's a few things they have in common. Uh, they're technologies. 
they're technologies that require um, some expertise to build and understand. But most importantly, in order to be useful, other things have to be invented as well. An internal combustion engine without all the other parts of a car, like brakes and windshields and all that, like not that useful. The, you know, electricity in and of itself, no, you need to invent distribution systems. You need to invent uses at the end, like a light bulb. Electricity isn't a light bulb. Someone had to invent a light bulb in addition to the electricity or an electric motor. Uh, and so there's this co-invention process where we have innovations, you know, upstream and downstream and upstream and downstream that generate this uh, positive innovation feedback loop and that lead to this transformative change. And so the hard part is at the beginning, uh, you can't see the whole feedback loop. You can only see where you are now. And, uh, and so I, I, I empathize with people who say, okay, well, all I can see with Dolly are the graphic designers who are going to lose their jobs. And yeah, you talk about this great world in the future of, uh, the graphic design everywhere, but that's not happening yet. Uh, you know, explain, how does that make a difference? And you can, you think the same thing with, uh, with the steam engine, right? All I see are these artisans who are losing their jobs, uh, I mean, it's weavers, for example. You don't see the idea that clothes are now cheap and we can either uh, choose to wear different things on different days, et cetera, uh, that are enabled by, uh, by a different kind of system. And that's and like the challenge and the, something that we were trying to unpack in power prediction is, okay, so what, uh, what does a new system look like based on prediction? And uh, you know, we clearly don't have all the answers. I don't want to pretend we do. Um, but there's a few things we do know. Uh, what we know first is that a lot of what companies do is related to dealing with the fact that they don't deliver the value they should to their customers. So think about a company's standard operating procedures, so the list of things that they do, list of rules. Sometimes they're about really delivering value and making their customers' lives better. But often they're, you know, we can't deliver value. It's just too hard. And so we're going to do some kind of kludge around it. So think about like the airport, right? Uh, the multi-billion dollar airports that are rated the best airports in the world, like Seoul Incheon or Singapore, they're pretty spectacular structures, right? They're, you know, there's these great restaurants and shopping and all this wonderful stuff. But there's this uh, other airport world, which is how the super rich fly. And the super rich don't fly through billion dollar airports. They fly through sheds. And that seems crazy. Usually the super rich, they fly through stuff that's better than what everyone else flies through. But, the, you know, in, in air travel, they fly through sheds. Why do they fly through sheds? Because, well, no one wants to spend time at the airport. The ultimate in, air in the air travel experience is you arrive at the airport, you walk on the plane, you take off. And the billions of dollars of, arch of architecture, like all of the energy that's wasted on, or that's spent on uh, shopping and restaurants and all that is there because they don't deliver good value, right? Uh, they do the best they can. It's, it's not to say there's real reasons why there's all those constraints and that uncertainty and they can't solve it. But if an airport was really delivering on the mission, like Seoul Incheon, best airport in the world by many rankings, uh, says their mission is to ensure smooth air transportation. If they're really doing that, the airport would look very, very different. It would look like the airport super. In any industry, you can sort of walk through this process. You can map through what are the things we do, uh, which of those are really about delivering value, which of those are about uh, accounting for the fact that we don't deliver value as well as we want to, 
and you see what our underlying mission is. And then the important AI part is the next step is to think through if we had better information, if we had an AI that could help us fill in this missing information, what could we do differently? And uh, to the extent that we have an answer, then that's a big picture goal that then you can start investing in AI to try to transform what you do. How do you cut through that into the, like driving value for my business? Cause you're kind of so focused on what the news is saying and that buzz. Starting point is um, to take a step away from science fiction and realize that there's nothing magical happening here. It is genuinely prediction technology and predictions are useful because they help us make decisions. The starting point for thinking through how AI can help your organization is to recognize that what it's going to do is help you make better decisions. So AI's impact is much more at the management level in terms of who thinks about, you know, who makes which decisions, uh, than you know, it's going to sort of automatically replace a whole bunch of people within what you do. Um, so starting with decisions, uh, and starting with AI's prediction, recognizing that's all about decisions. And then thinking through, okay, it's a little more mundane than, um, you know, than uh, machines that can think. It's what parts of the organization do we not fulfill our mission because we lack information? And could AI help us um, by providing that information? And then frankly, once you're thinking that way, you might realize AI is not the information solution, but there's some other prediction type solution that can solve that problem. Uh, and uh, like that was uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, Joshua wrote this book. Um, amazingly, he, he's a, you know, he writes quickly, uh, came out in May, 2020. And uh, one of the insights in that book was this idea that um, COVID for most of us was not a health problem. It was an information problem. If we knew it was infectious, we'd stay away from those people. And the rest of us could have gone about our business and there would have been like almost no disruption to the global economy. The only reason there was disruption is we didn't know which 1% or less of the populations in the early days had COVID. And so the rest of us had to, you know, our lives were very, very constrained. And actually we started looking for uh, AI-based solutions. Once we said, hey, this is about filling in missing information. We know how to do that. That's AI. Um, and as part of a, a consortium that we put together to try to help open Canadian workplaces, um, they, and we started looking for testing solutions and we, we really thought in the early days, hey, AI was one of the places we looked. Over time, we realized actually the best prediction about whether you're infectious with COVID was a rapid test. We're familiar with them all. All of us are familiar with them now, but uh, that wasn't obvious in our, you know, we really started ramping these up in August and September, 2020. And then we still, you know, then, if you actually want to use that to help people get back to work, you still need to think through all the decisions and build a new kind of system around that prediction. But even though we thought we were doing an AI project, or at least some of us thought we were doing an AI project in the beginning, not all of us, um, it turned out the best prediction tool was not an AI-based prediction tool, it was a different kind of machine. I'd love to jump into the, the quick fire round. Um, and I, fi I find it funny that I'm asking an author what their favorite book is, but what is your favorite book or maybe a, a book that you're reading right now that you really like? We'll start with like, so The Lever of Riches by Joel Mokir is the book that I think set me on my career path. I read it in my last year of undergrad in Marvin McGinnis's course, Professor, an economic story in there. Um, and the theme of that book 
it's all about how technology and technological change uh, creates productivity growth and sort of an economic history of the stories behind the industrial revolution and how like, technology transformed the economy. And that, you know, that's been the core theme of my research. Um, maybe not you know, immediately because I was still an undergrad, um, but as soon as I was choosing a research topic and uh, studying uh, you know, what kind of economics did I want to study, I jumped right to thinking through the next generation of technology, the one that was exciting at that point and thinking through how it could impact growth and productivity in the economy. What are you most excited about in 2023, professional and or personal? Okay. I can't wait to see what people do with ChatGPT. Like this technology, you know, and other large language models and like generative models uh, advanced faster than I thought they would. And here we are, you know, we're two months at in, uh, maybe a little more. Uh, to seeing what ChatGPT could do. And wow, like what's coming is going to be amazing. And not just what the technology can do. That's, I think we have a sense of that. It's more what people figure out how to, uh, how to apply it all over the place in order to, to make uh, lots and lots of people's lives better. How do you deal with hard times? Um, you know, you're an author, successful professor. How have you dealt with difficult challenges in your life? I, I go back to work. Um, I find being busy distracts me from, uh, from all sorts of other things. So I try to keep myself busy and, uh, you know, I've had since the early days of my career, like the, you know, everyone sort of struggles for the first little while, but the last few years have been pretty great. Um, and I've been very lucky. I imagine that will continue forever, um, but it's been a pretty good streak. I deal with hard times by working, but um, I got to admit the the last decade or so has been pretty pretty fantastic. Love that. And before we wrap it up, we'd love to open the floor up to you to how can people learn more about you, find your book, whatever you want to chat about. No, thanks. So I'm a University of Toronto professor. Uh, find me on LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever else, um, and. I really love uh, seeing the companies that come through the Creative Destruction Lab. So if you have, if you're building a science-based startup, check us out and uh, and apply. And maybe I'll see you in the lab next year or the year after or sometime beyond. That's awesome. Well, appreciate the time today. And this has been such a great conversation. And thanks for coming on. Okay. Thanks, Evan. Take care. That was If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.